Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association, where we aim to change the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern, or catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I wish all of you a happy Thanksgiving, a very beautiful day with your friends and your family. We are grateful for you, our listeners, and for all the blessings that God has given us this year. We hope you will enjoy the show this week. So we're chatting about the Litany of Humility with Dave Reinhardt, my friend and colleague at the Catholic Association. But first, my TCA colleague Ashley McGuire joins us to discuss why turning to classic films might be the biggest and safest bet when trying for a good, wholesome family movie night. She joins us with a list of her favorites, including some good Christmas options. Welcome to the show, Ashley. Great to be with you, as always, Gracie. You were so kind as to fill in for me last week when I had very bad laryngitis. My my voice is not back to normal, but it's mostly back to normal. So thank you very much for that great assist. The show oh. was fabulous. You had a great talk about Indy Gregory, um, that poor baby that passed away in the UK. There were there were a lot of sad things about it. One of the good things about it was that the baby was baptized before she died. So we thank God for that, and we hope that things are better going forward in the UK. They seem to be getting worse, but maybe things hit, you reach rock bottom, right? And then you get better. We can only hope and pray. Mm -hmm. And we can be thankful for a lot of things, especially this week, which is Thanksgiving week. And here in our, in our dear United States, uh, there are many things to be thankful about. We can be thankful for our constitution. We can be thankful for all the wonderful people who, who help us in so many ways. Um, to to make this country the wonderful place that it is to to live and to raise children and to practice our faith. So lots of that going on this week, but also lots of downtime. And so I thought, Ashley, we could talk about you have a, a great piece uh, in the um, in the blog of the remind Inst me what Institute for Family Studies. That's right. Institute for Family Studies about watching movies with your family and how hard it is to find them. And then some suggestions for some family-friendly movies. Yeah, so I'm sure I'm not the only one uh, or the only home that has what we call family movie night. Um, and my kids look forward to it all week. And we have pizza on Fridays and watch a movie. And um, it's been getting harder and harder because the pipeline of what I would call acceptable content is drying up <laughs> really fast. Yeah, that's um, true. You know, they're certainly churning out a lot, you know, plenty of movies, but um, they're just, you know, not movies that I consider acceptable for my family, especially with the sort of wokeism, the woke makeover of companies like Disney, where it seems like every movie has some kind of indoctrination angle. Um, Let's talk about that. Before we talk about good movies, what is, what are the kind of, kinds of things that you're seeing? You have small children. I, I'm still pretty... I, I still try to keep up with children's movies because we happen to like children's movies in our family. We like anytime there's an animated movie or not, uh, we, we go see that. We actually go to the movies, even with my youngest being 16. Uh, but what are you seeing out there in, in, thing, in movies that are called family friendly or family movies that, that we should avoid, that you feel that we should avoid or you've seen that ought to be walked around instead of, instead of submitting our children to it? Well, I think the most obvious thing is any anything, any whiff of gender ideology, you know, running the gambit mm -hmm. to me, um, you know, you can't even step foot in a kid's library section anymore without being inundated with it. And the same for for movies um, there. That's really something that they're pushing. I also think they're pushing the boundaries of, you know, what's acceptable in terms of sexual content um, what kind of stuff like cohabitation, divorce, I just innuendo, innuendo, I'm, 
yeah and yeah I've um, seen a lot of that right like they don't quite come out and say it but there's there's there there are innuendos and and sort of side comments sprinkled sprinkled where your children might not notice it but they're there right they're like little bombs yeah and there's also um a lot of just kind of potty slapstick stuff that you know I don't put in the same category as as gender ideology but it's also garbage um Mm -hmm. and you know also what about disrespect well that's what i was going to say the last one i was going to say is the most subtle one that you have to really suss out which is that the constant theme that i see now in children's movies is um that the child is going against the parents wishes and that that's empowering and actually, I think this goes way back. And if you look at a lot of Disney movies, I was going like to say <laughs> Little Mermaid. I mean, the Aladdin. whole thing. Yeah, they go against. They're sneaking around behind their parents' backs. Their parents are portrayed as out of step curmudgeons who are either stupid or backwards, and or maybe just being influenced by a bad actor, like an Aladdin, right? Like the like the the emperor is he an emperor? A sheikh? What is he? Yeah, <laughs> He's oh, being sultan. influenced. The sultan. sultan. So but the sultan influenced. comes off as dumb. I mean, he comes off yeah, as an ogre, like just a a stupid, a fat, you know, guy. And the patriarchy. Who's the standing in the way of his of his daughter's mm-hmm. fulfillment, you know, um, instead of watching out for her because, you know, there's sinister actors lurking all around the castle. And look, but, uh, um, look at the Little Mermaid. The Her father was correct. The, mm-hmm. the place for a little mermaid is not walking around on shore that she's not equipped for that. Right. right. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, and she had so... to sell her soul practically to, to make that happen. Any father would, would counsel his daughter and would protect her from an act like the one that the little mermaid, I mean, in the end, she, she, uh, she gets her happy ending, but that was a very unlikely solution, right. Or an uh, unlikely outcome for what she did. Right. Yeah, no, I think that parents, I mean, I have a website that I look at that I wouldn't say is a complete or perfect um, filter, but, you know, there's several of these out there that are, you know, Christian websites that, you know, the one that I look at is Common Sense Media. What I like about it- that's a great website. Is that it tells you, you know, it, it breaks it out by category, things like drinking drugs, you know, language, sex. Um, and it, you know, gives you a like scale, you know, one dot, two dot, up to five dots. And, um, you know, it even catches things like flirty looks, you know, um, mm. and usually if it goes past one dot, it's out. Um, so there's let me just ask little- you, let me ask you, Ashley, one, one thing that I hear people say, people with younger children is they say, well, these, these are realities of life. My kids are going to go out there and they're going to be encountering situations which are not, uh, you know, that's not what we're teaching them is correct. And what that's not what we're teaching them is, is the proper way to conduct your life and the healthiest way, but they're going to be seeing it. Why shouldn't they see it in the movies that they watch and in the shows that they consume? Well, I mean, I think children have a right to a childhood. So, mm-hmm. you know, and the job of parents is to protect that childhood, protect their right to innocence. Um, and of course, like nobody actually thinks that you can protect them forever, um, but it should be the parents talking about and having these conversations with their kids um, first and not having it snuck in the back door by people with agendas mm-hmm. in companies like Disney and mark my words, those people do not have your children's interests in mind. They no. have an agenda. It is not a conspiratorial mm-hmm. thing to say um, that they are trying to shape the way children think and see the world. And that is the job of a parent. And that was not always the case with children's movies. However, um, I do think that this is not completely new. It's just that it's getting more um, in your face. You know, what's interesting when you look at some of the older movies uh, long before um, actors like Disney wanted to to make um, gender ideology something normal and uh, long before that, there were a lot of movies where things like divorce because of uh, 
parents not getting along. I'm thinking, what's that movie with the twin girls that the parents oh, have twins? Parent Trap. Parent Trap. So the parents have twins. And then I always, I watched this with my children when they were younger. I've watched it many times, but I was always sort of flabbergasted. I'm like, okay, in what moral universe does it work for a mom and a dad who aren't getting along to split up their twin daughters and move to different continents? Like the mother denies her, her little girl, the father, and the father denies the one he keeps the mother. Right. So we all sort of show like, oh, the parent trap is so cute. But it's based on this horrible premise that it's that there's any any moral possibility of denying your little baby the other parent. Like, oh, because we're not we're not getting along and a sibling. Oh, we're just not getting along. And then and then erasing them as though you kill them. (laughs) Right. Like you kill their like you kill the other parent. Um, no, it's it's true. And that's why I would I would give the caveat that just because a movie is older, old older, or 30 doesn't mean. And in fact, I would I would say like some of the classics that are 20, 30 years old, like that are fun, what people think of as kid friendly yes. um, family movies like Home Alone, for example. Yes, yes. There's a scene where he's looking at a stack of pornographic magazines that belong oh, to I his brother. You know, or, and there's, or maybe I'm thinking of a different, the Sandlot. I mean, there's, there's content and and messages in those older movies too. And so, you know, this has been. There was a time in the seventies and eighties where there were a lot of pre like teen movies, preteen movies that were really for families. They were, they were marketed for families, but there's some really weird racy content in them that I've discovered later. Uh, A couple of times my husband has said, oh, let's watch that old classic from the eighties that I loved when I was young for the, with the kids. And he puts it on after five minutes at, Oh no, let's not watch that. <laughs> yeah. Because something horrendous will come up. Like they're looking at pornography or, you know, the, there's a girl coming home from her date and instead of coming home at 11, she's sneaking in the window and you can, you know, she's all, she's all, she's p- partially undressed, like things like that, where you're, where you see that there was this like weird sort of sexual. Well, another good example is the, the John Travolta, Olivia Newton, movie Grease. I mean, mm-hmm. I was allowed to watch that. And I'm like, why? I mean, the messages are so bad. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the leading message is um, girls should be promiscuous in order to please men to, to the point that they should literally change their identity. But there's yeah, you abortion. have the sweet Sandra D, right? She's adorable. She's sweet. Like she's everything we want our daughters to be. And then there's a boy who's sort of a bad boy. And he's like, no, I'm not going to be a bad boy. I'm going to be a boy that's worthy of her. I'm going to be a good guy. Yeah. And then the the end story is, no, no, don't be a good guy. I'll be a bad girl. (laughs) And we're all clapping along and saying, you're the one that I want. Right? Right. (laughs) That's the last song of Greece. I saw that when I was young in Mexico. And I don't think I understood a lot of the language. I know I didn't understand any of the innuendos. I didn't understand that Rizzo was pregnant or not pregnant. Or thought she was pregnant. That that completely uh, went over my head. Mm-hmm. Thank God. But I I got I definitely got the message of you know you should be a hottie in high school so you can get the handsome boy. <laughs> right. God knows what it did to my mind. Yeah. <laughs> I hope not too much. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we do, Ashley? What do we do? It's uh it's Thanksgiving. We've got Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday off. Right. And we want to decompress from the too much work that we do. And the kids are the, the kids are home, thank God, and our families are around. What do we watch? Well, so in my article, I talk about how one day I just, you know, told my husband, I, I literally can't come up with a movie tonight. And our kids were pretty young. So watching older classics just didn't even occur to me because I was in the mindset that if it's not animated and not what I call geared towards kids, that they're not going to be interested. And he proposed sound of music. And I was like, Oh, like they're going to watch that. And we had the complete opposite experience. My kids didn't want to turn it off, loved it. Then for weeks, wanted to listen to the soundtrack in the car. But the thing that I found interesting was that they kept wanting to talk about the movie. Mm -hmm. They wanted to know, why were they fleeing the country? Why did Captain Von Trapp have to escape in the middle of the night? So that turned into conversation. Yeah, so about- these are hard top. These are big topics, right? Yeah. The, the, the movie's not about, it's not a, it's not a cutesy little movie about nothing at all, right? Right. It's, these are big topics and children, it's okay to introduce children to big topics, I think is what you're saying. 
Yeah. And especially when the, you know, the moral framework is right. Like this is a movie. That's a movie that's about a man who takes a courageous stand and Mm -hmm. puts everything on the line for his moral convictions. All of the messages in the movie are so good and, and it's entertaining. And so that made me think, okay, we're going to try a different approach here to family movie night. And so we've been slowly going through these epic classics. And by epic, I mean epics, like three, four hour movies like Sound of Music. And my kids love them. They love them. And it doesn't seem to in any way deter them that many of these movies are 50, 60, 70 years old. So another example that was a huge hit was Ben-Hur. And that's an almost four hour movie. And my kids loved it. I hadn't seen it and I loved it. And, you know, there's a remake of Ben-Hur. In black and white. I'm sorry, in color, not from not long ago, three or four years, maybe five years ago. It's excellent. It's not as, oh, really? I don't know. I don't know if it's as good as the classic, but it is in color. That's another well, thing I, to think about. To me, Charlton Heston, I mean, why remake it? He's, he's timeless. And the movie is definitely has slow parts, but my kids didn't lose interest. Um, you know, they found many of the scenes just captivating. Like when, you know, he's, kind of has a standoff with the Roman soldier in the galley of the slave ship. And so that has been the approach that we've been taking. And what I'm realizing is that there's just an unending treasure chest of movies like that. The the five movies that I talk about in my article were just the first five that came to mind. Ben-Hur, Ten Commandments, um, which is the story of um, Moses, Fiddler on the Roof, which, you know, that's another example. We watched that one last year. And then a few days after we finished it, Haim Topol, the actor who plays Reptevia, died. And so there was a lot of stories. I think it was on the front page of the newspaper. And, um, you know, he died. He lived in Israel and was an advocate for Israel, you know, Israeli rights. And it ended up leading to a lot of conversations, both the movie and then the subsequent death of the leading actor in Israel with our kids about, you know, the, the historical persecution of the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad we had those conversations because it sort of equipped them. You know, my oldest daughter is now 11. She's old enough to understand, you know, what's going on in the world. She sees headlines, she hears news stories to, you know, it, it equipped them to sort of process a little bit of what's happening right now. And so all of these movies, oh, and then the fourth movie I mentioned is Master and Commander. And then the fifth is High Noon starring Gary Cooper. And um, all of those movies, when they ended, the conversation didn't stop. It, mm-hmm. They all led to conversations about, you know, what does it mean to take a moral stand? What is true friendship, um, betrayal and forgiveness? These important themes and virtues that, Modern movies, even if they're clean, are so frequently lacking. They're just lacking a deeper um, context. And I I truly believe that- Or when they have a deeper context, it's the wrong one, right? Like maybe right. like they're very- Or it's, it's more about individualism, like individualism, your personal right for your own to flourish on your own terms, right? There's very little, usually there's very little- um, idea there are very few ideas about responsibility your duties like how how high and nobly you can live your life these things don't they don't seem to come up and that gracie is what i think actually truly entertains children Mm -hmm. and i think we have a mistaken concept when it comes to both books and movies with kids that if you dumb it down and take out the hard stuff that that's what's going to make them read it watch it But in fact, it's the opposite. It's when you challenge them with a material that's a little harder to wrestle with Mm -hmm. because it's, you know, maybe a little slower. Maybe you have to kind of stop and explain a few times things. Um, That is when they're truly engaged. And, you know, a separate uh, parallel example was with my son this summer, you know, he was bringing home books from his school that were stupid, like Diary of a Wimpy Kid. And I just Mm -hmm. said, nope. (laughs) I gave him the first book of um, the Chronicles of Narnia series and he didn't 
he wouldn't put them down and he mm-hmm. read like five of them without stopping. And it's a similar concept with movies. It's when you truly raise the bar, um, whether it's with literature or film, that is when you engage them in a meaningful way that makes it an enjoyable movie experience. That's been my experience Mm -hmm. with going back to the classics and we're about to finish West side story. And it's again, you know, it's, it's a, it's a movie that deals with difficult topics. Like it's a Romeo and Juliet. It's a Romeo and Juliet remake, right? Right. West side story. Right. But a lot of it is about race relations in New York in the Mm seventies. And, but it's just, I don't know how to explain it. It's just, it's done in a way that leads you to be able to talk with your kids about it without it feeling like somebody just opened a fire hose of indoctrination. Well, on and it's done in a very human way, right? right? Like, you know that if two people, two groups of people with different traditions and different uh, cultural references and the things that they value, even though they're both Catholic, for instance, right? The Irish and the, the Puerto Ricans, um, they have... Yes, they have all these points between them that don't match up and it's going to be difficult. And that's just human. That's just beautifully human. It has, you know, you can leave the CRT and the DEI out of it. You know what we like? We've watched a million times in our house is Muppet Treasure Island. So oh, the that's Muppets, a great one. Love that one. Yeah, the Muppet, the Muppet movies are great. The Muppets did a Treasure Island. So Treasure Island, your classic book, mm-hmm. um, Stevenson, I think, right? Uh I think wrote it. Well, anyway, many years last in the last cent- two centuries ago. <laughs> but anyway, um, the Muppets do it great. And it's a musical and it's absolutely fabulous. There's Oliver, you know, a Dickens musical. Mm-hmm. That's very pretty. A Christmas Carol. A Christmas, Christmas Carol. Carol. Yeah, that's a no, great. That's a great one. And, um, you know, some of the there's there's many versions of it. And they're again, like, don't fall for the trap and thinking that because it looks old, slow and boring, the kids won't be engaged. Um, if you have you know, girls, the um, Jane Austen, mm-hmm. right? Pride and Prejudice. Uh, you know, another girls um, love that. Girls love the period costumes and the the romance. Another um, great one for the holidays. Uh, actually, we it's funny. I've bought them all, um, but they're especially great for Halloween, Thanksgiving, and Christmas. Are the Charlie Brown movies, and those are entertaining for adults and kids. They have, you know, humor that adults get. Um, there's a lot of wry humor, but they have wonderful historical messages. The Thanksgiving one is, I think, the best sort of synopsis of the Thanksgiving story that you're going to get in under 30 minutes. Um, the Christmas one has, you know, wonderful Christmas messages. So those are, those are other ones to consider. You know what else I've discovered looking at movies is sometimes there's a really good remake of a movie because it's good because it has great actors and it's, and it's modern and it's, but if you look for the original one, it's more true to the original story and it doesn't have a lot of this. It's a cleaner version. And I'm thinking of cheaper by the dozen is one that that comes up. There's a black and white cheaper by the dozen. I think Lucille Ball is in it. It's hilarious. And in that movie, the mom and dad are just widowed. They're widowed. I think in the in the in the in the more recent redo, there's divorce involved, which complicates things. Things like that. Like sometimes look for a movie. Look look for the original version of a movie before the sort of the modern paintbrush was applied to it. Well, we've talked about closer. Anne of Green Gables and how you oh, know my the, gosh. The, the new Anne of Green Gables is is woke. They they can't help themselves. They have to do this weird revisionist thing where they're like, and it's a, it's another, it's again, it's like people think that, oh, people won't like, appreciate, understand, relate to the story if it doesn't reflect modernity. To the contrary, we yearn mm-hmm. for these classics. For that, simple things, for simple yeah. things that aren't challenging, right? Yeah. Or at least they're challenging to, to develop virtues. They challenge you to develop virtues. They're not challenging in the sense of, Oh my gosh, is that really happening in the world? <laughs> That's a yeah. horrible challenge. On the Anne of Green Gables front, I I would say, and I, I think I'm correcting this, the Netflix uh, Anne with an E, the first season is true to the book and you can watch it, but don't watch the second season because they make one of the classic characters who lives down the street, the, well, anyway, they make her 
well, they do. They take terrible, uh, terrible liberties. That's in, but that's in season two. Season one was actually really, really good. There's this beautiful part. This is my favorite part of anything event, of any movie, practically, is when um, he picks up Uncle Cuthbert. Is that his name? No. Oh, Matthew Cuthbert. Matthew Cuthbert picks up Anne at the train station. He's expecting a boy from the yeah. orphanage who's going to come and work on the farm, and they send this poor little redhead girl who's so desperate to leave the orphanage and she just doesn't know what to do to be kept. And he falls in love with her and then they get to they keep her when they, what they really needed was a little boy who could, you know, move bags of grain around and they right. down. Anyway, I'll never forget that. <laughs> the first time I read that is probably why I adopted my daughter is probably because I read Anne of Green Gables when I was little. So Ashley, you've given us lots and lots of good uh, material and it's really good to talk about these things of how we can confront the, the modern culture smartly, right? And we can we can filter it for our children. And as you say, keep them pure, give them their time of innocence, give them their time where they can build they can build an idea of the world which is which is which is good, which is clean and decent and 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 pretty because we know that the world's a challenging place. So let, let's build them up and make them strong before before they go out and face it on their own, right? Right. So thank you so much, Ashley, for joining me today. And I I hope you and all our listeners have a really, really lovely Thanksgiving surrounded by family and friends and, and that your hearts be like mine and like Ashley's full of gratitude for all the blessings that our Lord has given us this year and, and all the years of our lives. Thanks, Gracie. Happy Thanksgiving. to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today I'm so happy to have a friend and colleague joining me. His name is Dave Reinhardt. He worked for many years in D.C. and then became editor and columnist at the Oregonian newspaper in Portland. He was there for 22 years. Now he dedicates himself to freelance writing and editing. He's a fabulous editor. He's my editor. He works with us at the Catholic Association. He also edited my husband's book. My husband recently wrote a book on pro-life arguments. I'm very proud of him. And it's a wonderfully edited book because Dave is very, very good at that. So thank you for joining us, Dave. You're very welcome. It's good to be with you, Gracie. Dave, we asked you to come on today because you have a special devotion to a prayer that we think should very much be highlighted during Lent, and it's the Litany of Humility. Now, many of our listeners probably are very well aware of it. May, maybe many of you read it and pray it during Lent especially, but I'd like to read it for all of our listeners before we start talking about it. Oh, Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being praised, deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being preferred to others, deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being calumniated, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being suspected, deliver me, O Jesus, that others may be loved more than I. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it, that others may be esteemed more than I. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it, that, in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease, that others may be chosen and I set aside, that others may be praised and I go unnoticed that others may be preferred to me in everything, that others may become holier than I, provided that I may become as holy as I should. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. Amen. Well, that's the Litany of Humility. What a wonderful uh, dive into the true meaning of the Christian life, isn't it, Dave? Oh, I think it is. It, it, uh, it's, it's, it's a beautiful prayer, 
And I think it is a prayer sometimes for our age, our age of self-esteem and branding and self-love and things that are presented as as, as positive goods. But uh, we seem to be in the middle of a very unhumble age. And uh, this is this has been meaningful for me since I first learned of it in the mid 2000s. And uh, I know it's, it's been meaningful for others. It, in, in, in some way, it led me to leave the Oregonian, where I was an opinion writer. Opinion writers are not known terribly for their humility all the time. And uh, coming to embrace this this prayer, and I pray it I, for 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 years. I prayed it every every day, and moment by moment, day by day, sometimes hour by hour, it has uh, shaped me and confronted me. It's just been a true true blessing to me. Dave, reading through it, it it it, it appears to me to refute all the. All the reasons that modern culture, our modern society gives us for happiness, to refute them as real sources of happiness. Because if we're being, if we're asking Jesus to grant us the desires of our hearts, and the desire of our heart is to lose that desire for praise, for inclusion, for for being um, admired, and also to, to lose that fear of being as it says, uh, forgotten or ridiculed or wronged or suspected. What a countercultural message this is and, and really a roadmap to true happiness. It really is. Your listeners should know, and I only know this secondhand, but I believe the source, who is a friend of uh, Justice Clarence Thomas's, I understand that the justice has a copy of the Litany of Humility on his wall in his uh, Supreme Court offices and has prayed it regularly and found it a great consolation. I imagine if you're someone like uh, Justice Thomas, you have to be very firm in all the these, uh, all these virtues, right? To, 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 oh, to yeah. go forward as he does every day against the current. Especially in coming out of the vicious assault on on him. That can harden a man's heart. He's gone to the right place with this litany of humility. I love the part that says that others may be chosen and I set aside. I think that might be one of the hardest challenges uh, to grasp as a Christian, the ability to let go of the desire to be first, to be chosen, to be noticed. Oh, I know. It's a deadly sin and to be and, and and the need to be reminded of it. I mean, there were different stanzas in each section that, that hit me sometimes more than others. One of them is that others, uh, that in the opinion of this world, others may increase and I may decrease. That's one that that hits me pretty hard and is is confronting. Of course, the language comes right out of John the Baptist when he uh, when mm. he saw saw Christ for the first time. The other one that uh, confronts me is the desire to be consulted. <laughs> uh, you, you know, whether it as is as a as a member of our my family or as a political consultant, which I was. For for years, or certainly as a editorial writer, an op-ed writer, you want to be consulted. And when you're not, you still may want it. And it still may not be good for you to still want it. And uh, and there is, true, there is true happiness. I'm not going to claim to be the personification of the litany of humility by any means. <laughs> but over time, and your listeners should know this if they don't already know it, degree by degree, it can change your outlook and make you more sensitive to the times when uh, you need to ask Jesus' help in this. What I like about this prayer is that it puts into words uh, these uh, the things that we know are true. Like we know when we meet someone else, when we have someone in our lives who always has to be noticed, always has to be the center of attention, always has to be right, has to be consulted. We know that those people not only make themselves unpleasant and, and decrease the peace of their homes and their workplaces, but we know they're also unhappy. 
right? So we know that about other people, but we often don't understand that about ourselves and how we ourselves are doing that same, those same things to a certain degree or other. And, And that's why these people often bug us so much because they manifest something that we know is in us and needs to be confronted and who better to confront it with than with jesus Mm -hmm. it's very beautiful what a good thing for lent isn't it it is it is Uh, i was intrigued by this because it was attributed and some claimed written by cardinal Raphael mary duvall who was secretary of state in the early part of the 20th century secretary of state of the vatican and i thought that he was interested in this because he was prey to great ambition and you know maybe he wanted a higher office than secretary of state and i started to learn more about him and in fact i learned that it wasn't his prayer he used a prayer that uh, was around had been around for some time and also he was not a man who was known as ambitious in fact he was known as a person who was truly humble he did not want the the office that he was given in 1900 he in fact he he lobbied against himself he wrote a letter to the pope saying don't appoint me to this this office he was just interested in being a pastor and 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 as he said saving souls he sounds like exactly the person you want to be in charge right someone who has no yes. personal no personal uh, interest in the game exactly yes it's easily found on the internet for people who are are interested in it and I I recommend it thoroughly. If you're just joining us, we're chatting about the Litany of Humility with Dave Reinhardt, my friend and colleague at the Catholic Association. Dave, another thing that occurred to me is, as, as I was reading through the Litany, I've recently entered, well, not so recently, I just turned 52, so it's two years ago that I entered into my second half century. I'm starting to see somewhat what it must be like as our energies diminish and we become the older generation and we start to be overlooked. And I have suddenly yes. a lot of sympathy for people who must retire because of age and take a step back and uh, all the different ways that age takes away from us our preeminent positions in in our world, Mm -hmm. in our world, whether that's professionally or personally at, at home. Don't you think that this litany is very useful for that state? I do, and I can resemble that remark I, uh, uh, because I'm a little older than 52. I'm 68, and my wife and I are, she's retired, and I'm kind of semi, semi-retired. And you do feel that, that the world has sometimes forgotten you or you don't have anything to contribute. And it's a challenge, and this will, I think, help to set your mind right there's a there's a line in the second section that talks about the fear of being forgotten Mm -hmm. there are so many of of us who can feel forgotten and do feel forgotten now there's a call on us to kind of remember these people and and also that we also we needn't be we needn't worry so much about being forgotten by the world if we can remember that we are remembered by jesus and that there's more to us than the things that this world would would give us and lavish on us that's the way to walk is to walk the the path of humility well it is and 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 uh yes jesus was the great service servant and and humble born in a manger died with criminals crucified with criminals and uh, it doesn't get much more humble than that thank god we have a a strange vision of i think of holy week of jesus's um end of his life on earth because we are seeing it after 2,000 years of Christian, of explosion of Christianity across the world, it's conquering of, of the world. And so we, we see the king up on the cross, but and we see him as the king, but I think we, we, we forget that really he was a naked, tortured man 
abandoned by all his friends, almost. Um, right. Um, yeah, suffering the most humiliating death that a person could suffer. Uh, yes. In, in pure, yeah. like, sh- in, in everyone watching, everyone in the world watching and, and, re- and, and laughing at him. So I, I think it's important during Lent, and maybe you agree, to stop and, and remember that about the passion. Yes, Talk about the fear of being humiliated mm-hmm. and the fear of being despised. Yes, absolutely. So he yeah. lived it before us. Now, now, Dave, you are a convert, and I, I'm sure that that was a, a really spectacular path, as, as all the paths of conversion are. And I wonder if you uh, experience what converts do. And, and it doesn't just, I, and I don't think it happens just to converts from one religion to another or, or one branch of Christianity to another. But I think it happens to anyone who has a real life-changing experience where, where they start to live their life in a, in a different way, a, a way that's congruent with their new, with their new world view. Uh, people reject you. People say, you're not the person that I'm used to. Why are you being so silly? Can we go back to our old ways? Did this happen to you? And could the litany of humility help converts? I think the litany of humility can help converts and indeed anybody. It didn't happen to me that much. I I went through a period of non-religiousness. But by the time I, I had been religious uh well before i became a convert to the catholic church uh i had been in the methodist church and in the episcopal church and i finally made my way to rome and have never looked back i tell my wife often even in her presence that this is the only thing i've ever joined that i didn't want to almost immediately get out of whether it was a fraternity a football and in fact <laughs> <laughs> our, 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 our marriage. <laughs> That's but, very common uh, in the first year of marriage, uh, I must say, Dave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I just want, I won't want deeper into this. And I was always a little different in my social set, I guess. I was uh, the conservative on an editorial board that was very liberal. And I had been an academic uh, at one point in my life, and they're not known for their conservatism, at least uh, in this. So I had been, they, they knew who I was. I had some issues with my family, uh, they, and, and, and my, my mother and father, uh, but that worked itself out through the love that existed before, during, and after. Do you think, though, so, that uh, that that often happens as a as a test, as it were, to to people who who find Christ, <laughs> they find oh, themselves I, challenged in their in their pride because people uh, refuse to accept them or they make fun of them. Oh, I do. I do think that crazy, and I think for me the uh, a big challenge, which I won't go into here, uh, occurred while on, on multiple fronts while I was uh, in, the, in going to instruction. And it, 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 was, a, it was a significant manif- multifaceted challenge. And uh, I think the devil tests you and the evil one uh, wants, wants you back. <laughs> He's probably so, just, yeah. uh, I, I can almost imagine him rubbing his hands, waiting for that moment when the convert finally relaxes a little bit. <laughs> And he says, oh, okay, yeah. now I'm going to yeah. strike. <laughs> yeah, and it's not always going to be roses. And you're not always going to have these, you're going to have periods of, of dryness. And the newness is going to wear off. And you're going to become a little aware of some of the warts in the institution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dave, yeah. thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and insights today on the Litany of Humility. I hope that our listeners will be inspired to to pray it and allow all of our hearts to be transformed by the beautiful words. So thank you again, Dave, and, and also, of course, for all you do as my editor and as a wonderful colleague at the Catholic Association. God bless you and all you do. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us, as we celebrate this Sunday the solemnity of Christ the King. 
Christ the King is, by the standard of church history, still a young feast. It's only 98 years old. It was instituted by Pope Pius XI during the 1925 Jubilee, in response to the rise of communism, fascism, and aggressive secularism, all of which were trying to eliminate Christian influence in society, to be supplanted by communist, fascist, or secularist pseudo-religious ideologies. Pope Pius XI stressed both the importance of Christian believers influencing society for the good, as salt of the earth, light of the world, and leaven, but also cautioning them to recall that Christ had come into the world not to inaugurate a political, but a spiritual kingdom. That's a lesson Pontius Pilate didn't get when he asked Jesus whether he was a king. It's a point that most Jews didn't get when they anticipated that the long-awaited Messiah would rule in the way that his ancestor David had ruled, defeating all foreign powers and triumphing over all who opposed him. That's a truth that not even the apostles grasped as they jockeyed for the choicest cabinet secretariat in what they presumed would be an earthly administration. That's a truth we still have to confront when people ask how Christ can be king when there's still so much evil and violence in the world as we see in the Ukraine, in the place of his birth in the Holy Land and even in American cities where lawlessness is metastasizing. The king we celebrate doesn't fit any of those earthly categories of power. As St. Paul wrote in his letter to the Philippians, Christ the king, even though he was in the form of God, didn't deem equality with God something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being born in human likeness, humbling himself, becoming obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. Christ's whole kingship is caught up in this saving service until death. Whereas most terrestrial kings have slews of servants caring for their every need, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, even those who by creation were his servants. Whereas earthly leaders regularly have sacrificed their subjects as soldiers for their own aggrandizement, Christ the King came to die for his subjects, to give his life as a ransom for the many. That's the King we fat. That's the kingdom he established. That's the way we're called to reign with him. The gospel for the feast, taken from St. Matthew, Christ the King of the universe, identifies first as the one who will come with glory, accompanied by his angels, to judge all the nations. But then he identifies himself as one who hungers and thirsts, as a stranger, as someone naked and prisoner sick, someone suffering or in need. It says that whatever we do to anyone in these circumstances, he, the King, will take personally. These are not just words for Jesus. Jesus was on the cross, for example, he himself was needy in all the ways he described. He was hungry and cried out, I thirst. He was stripped naked. He was a stranger even in the world he created, kicked out of his own city of Jerusalem to die as a malefactor at the place of the skull. He was sick and wounded, having had his flesh ripped open by a brutal Roman scourging, having been beaten and crowned with thorns. He was imprisoned not only in the high priest's dungeon, but pinned to the cross with nails. The more we look to him on his throne, on the cross, the easier it is for us to see his sufferings in the suffering members of his, of his mystical body. Just as it shocked the people 2,000 years ago that Jesus crucified was really king of the Jews, so people remain shocked that he humbles himself to identify personally with the little ones and wants his subjects to make themselves the servants of these least ones. Christ the King wants us to grasp and live this lesson that to enter his kingdom, to reign with him, we must like him, serve and lay down our life in love for the poor, the outcast, and the weak. God's kingdom is ultimately one in which we care for each other, which we feel responsible for each other, which we behave as good Samaritans crossing the road for each other, inconveniencing ourselves and sacrificing ourselves for each other's welfare. He tells us that when he comes at the end of time in glory as king to judge the living and the dead, he will separate us into two groups as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. This division will be as stark as the separation between light and darkness, between truth and lies. He will place his sheep, the saved, on his right and the goats, the damned, on his left. Then he will say to those on his right, among whom, God willing, we hope to be numbered, for I was hungry and you gave me food, thirsty and you gave me drink, naked and you clothed me, a stranger and you welcomed me, ill and you cared for me, in prison and you visited me. Those on his right will respond in effect, Lord, when did we do any of this for you? And the king will reply, whatever you did for the least of my brothers and sisters, you did for me. 
Jesus didn't mean to give us an exhaustive list of good deeds or even very hard things to accomplish, like giving away huge sums of money or extraordinary acts of heroic sacrifice that would one day earn us a Wikipedia page. He gave us six simple actions that any of us can do and have the opportunity to do almost every day as a sign of what he's asking. And he said that that is the path for us to inherit the kingdom prepared since the foundation of the world. He also said that it's possible to fail the exam of life when some will hear those horrible words, depart from me, you are cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Those who will hear him are not necessarily people we would call evil. To some, they might even seem holy. By their question of the king in today's parable, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, naked or strange or ill or in prison and not attend to your needs? They imply that had they known it was the Lord, they would have spared no effort. But because all they saw was a nobody, they did nothing. The great test of our love for God is our love for each other, especially those who are challenging to love. The servant of God, Dorothy Day, once said, we love God to the extent that we love the person we like the least. We love God to the extent that we love a poor hungry beggar, or a homeless drunk, or a felon on death row, or an AIDS-infected drug user, or an illegal alien. St. John wrote in his first epistle that we can't love the God we haven't seen if we don't love the brother or sister we have seen. And Jesus wants to help us grow in the capacity for love by making it easier for us, calling us to treat others the way we would treat him, since he presumes that if we knew we were caring for him directly, most of us would give it our best. The single most important question of our life is whether we serve or ignore Christ in our needy brothers and sisters. The judgment will be nothing more than a revelation of how we have used our freedom to live by Jesus' words or not. How have we chosen to love Jesus or reject Jesus directly or in disguise? So it behooves us to ask, when we see someone who's hungry or thirsty, do we try to help get them food or do we tell them to go get a job? Since Jesus identifies with the hungry, is it enough for us to wait for someone who's starving to approach us for food? Or do we go in search of Jesus in the disguise of the man or the woman or the child with hunger pains? Do we welcome strangers or do we resent their presence? If we would never deport Jesus to the Holy Family or forcibly separate the infant Jesus from Mary and Joseph, can we look the other way when this happens at our borders? Do we clothe the naked or do we take advantage of their nudity? through pornography. If we see someone shivering without a jacket or shoes or a winter hat in a frigid winter, would we give ours? Do we give preferential care for those who are sick or do we ignore them lest we catch what they have? Do we care for prisoners or just think of them as a bunch of thugs toward whom our only reaction should be fear and vengeance? Do we pray for those who are incarcerated, even those on death row? Or do we clamor for their death like the mobs called for Pontius Pilate to crucify Jesus? When we examine our consciences on the basis of the gospel, probably most of us can recall those times when we have really lived up to our call as Christians to serve the least of our brothers and sisters with Christ-like love. But we also can recall some explicit occasions when we have stiffed a homeless person or a cheap to a missionary, refused to open our heart to a family member or colleague who really needed our help. This feast is an opportunity for us to ask Jesus' mercy, that we may begin to carry out better the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. He, our King, has never failed to care for us in our need. To those of us who are hungry, he gives us his own flesh to eat. To those of us who are thirsty, he quenches us with his own blood. To those of us who are naked, he clothes us in his virtues. To those of us who are alienated from his kingdom, he welcomes us and reconciles us to the Father. To those of us who are ill and afflicted, he comforts us by joining us to him in our sufferings and thereby giving our sufferings redemptive meaning and value. To those imprisoned by sin, he not only visits us but frees us from ourselves, breaking down the bars once and for all and showing us the way out. Jesus fulfilled each of these corporal works of mercy by giving of himself in love. This shows what the fulfillment of human life is, to give of ourselves out of love to God and others in such a way that this self-gift of ours becomes the gift of Christ himself to others. We're called to give not just bread and water, not just medicine and clothing, but ourselves together with Christ. This is the way Christ's kingdom will reign in us. This is the fulfillment of the prayer, thy kingdom come. Viva Cristo Rey.
Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 